Hello and welcome back to the Mr. Jones Watchers podcast. This week we speak to comic book creator and professor Brian Clater, who is currently working on a design for Mr. Jones Watchers. In this episode, we discuss comic book creating, his creative influences, and what being a comic book professor entails. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, Olivia. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Good. Thank you for being on. Congratulations on Step Right Up, your new watch. Thank you. Thank you. I'm <laughs> Releasing super excited. next week, isn't it? That's right. Great. Um, so how did you come to design for Mr. Jones Watches? Um, well, I got into watch collecting and started doing some research as, you know, probably all of us watch collectors do. And I ran across this great company based in London, uh, who is doing a lot of artist designed watches. And I just really fancied what they were doing. And, uh, after looking at their website over and over again, I thought, I'm just going to reach out to them and, and say hello. And so I sent Crispin, Mr. Jones, uh, an email uh, introducing myself. And I said, hey, um, I'd love to work with you sometime. I'm no stranger to client work. I've done, you know, uh, work for higher illustrations for the largest pinball manufacturer in the world, Stern Pinball, to, uh, you know, neon sign custom designs. And, uh, you know, basically I'm no stranger to client work. And um, if you're interested, uh, I'd love to work with you. So, mm-hmm. uh, thankfully Crispin felt the same way and, uh, <laughs> here we are with, uh, my first watch with Mr. Jones. Did you propose like a design straight away or did you just say that you would like to work with him? Uh, initially I said, I'd like to work with him. Uh, mm-hmm. but then in very short order, he asked for some ideas and I said, yes, I have several. And so I I actually presented him with three different ideas based on three different movements that Mr. Jones watches work with. And, um, and we went from there. Great. So what type of watches were you collecting before you came Uh, across Mr. Jones watches? Um, I am an artist, but I also am interested in tech. Uh, I'm a pinball collector and, uh, I write and illustrate books about, uh, gaming history and pinball design and uh, all that to say I am interested in artistic watches that catch my eye um, I, I had a watch from long ago it was uh, uh, something that my mom bought me it was a, a, a fossil watch that I still have but since then I've been just picking up other pieces that catch my eye I have a, a and um, trying to think of some of the other ones offhand. I've got a, uh, I have a uh, Clifford Richards uh, timeline <laughs> on my wrist too. Uh, that was a uh, real treat for me to get. I just thought that was such an amazing design that Clifford put together. And I've, I've since written him and told him what I thought about that. So yeah, I've got a few. <laughs> Did in the you get a reply? Now. Yeah, I did. Yeah, he he wrote back a very kind response and I'm waiting for my watch to launch so I can say, hey, I joined the club. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have your watch already? Do you have the sample? I do have the sample, yes. And I have been um, battling my wife for who gets to wear it. (laughs) 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 The final sample came in and I I showed it to her and she said, I want this one. Okay, you can have it. So I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my limited edition. The final one. Version. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you explain your inspiration behind the design? 
Yeah, I'm really interested in gaming history and the minds behind the designs and where the games evolved from. And I have a collection of pinball machines in our basement here. And, you know, those used to be uh, ran in penny arcades and taverns and things like that. But, you know, carnivals are kind of the uh, predecessor to that as well. And I'm interested in carnival games and uh, traveling shows. And that was an element that I thought, well, there's often this time-based element with like shooting galleries. Uh, you have a limited amount of time to accrue as many points as you possibly can. And there's often moving or rotating elements involved with those. So it just all kind of came together to form Step Right Up. Mm -hmm. And you said that you collect pinball machines. Where did that start? I probably have my dad to thank for that. <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, he had a game or two in our basement. Um, and now I have 13 in our basement. 13. <laughs> you must have a big basement. <laughs> uh, I, I live in the Midwest in the United States. And one of the great things about that is that pretty much everyone has a basement that kind of doubles the size of their house. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a little room in the basement for me to set up some games. Yeah. Do you actually play them like a lot? Uh, yes. It's one of the things. <laughs> you don't just been, leave them there and look at them. It's one of the things that's been helping me deal with this whole pandemic thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're just in the basement all day. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say all day, but, you know, occasionally my family, my young son, my wife and I will head down there and, and we'll grab some games or we'll compete or we'll play split flipper where, you know, one person will take one side of the flipper and the next person will take the other side and you'll try to um, have a decent game with two people on one game. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so what was it like designing a watch compared to your normal work? Because you normally make um, comic books, don't you? That's right. Yeah, I'm a comic book uh, writer and artist and professor. I, I teach at Michigan State University where I spearheaded the comic art and graphic novel minor course of study. And I teach the studio classes there as well. Um, and uh, traditionally, comic book artists will reduce their work for the final printed form. So they'll draw large and reproduce small. And usually that's about a two thirds, like a 66% reduction. And that's the size that I work with. Uh, the only difference here working for a watch face is that the reduction size was a lot greater. So when I illustrated the watch, it was reduced to about a quarter of the size that I drew it. And I was a little bit worried about whether or not uh, it was going to be able to be reproduced. I wasn't sure about fidelity of line, especially for the printing methods. I wasn't sure what was going to be used, but when the samples started rolling in, I was really pleasantly surprised at what I saw. You know, there was a, all the detail that I put in there was retained and uh, I'm just over the moon about it. Were you, um, was it challenging to work around the movement of the watch when designing the illustration? You know, in artwork, sometimes it's easier to have constraints put on you. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, if you have a wide open canvas uh, and anything is possible, then it's a little uh, daunting. But I think I mentioned that I made a uh, I made a proposal for three different movements. So each of those movements had their own constraints, and so I designed 
uh, a watch face that would fit each of those movements. Uh, you know, I had one of the uh, Mr. Jones watch face designs uh, with the jump hour and then uh, another one like you see in Step Right Up and the third design I had was using uh, a different jump hour movement, the one that's used in Promise of Happiness, uh, the Tiger Watch and uh, Number Cruncher and a number of other ones. I think the uh, uh, playing card ones use that same yeah. uh, movement if I'm not mistaken. Um, so you also work as a professor. Could you give us a little overview of your career and how you got where you are today? Yeah, so uh, like I said, I am a professor at Michigan State University and I teach the comics studio classes there. We have classes in both comic art and also comics literature. So the literature courses are taught in the English department and the comic studio courses are taught in the art department and I teach the, the studio art courses. And we've got just a ton of resources at Michigan State University for studying comics. Like uh, I'm the director of a multi-day annual event for scholars, creators, and fans called the Michigan State University Comics Forum, where we bring internationally recognized award-winning cartoonists as keynote speakers. And uh, we have artist alleys. Uh, we have panel discussions with uh, scholars who come from all over the world to discuss comics. Um, we also have a podcast which airs monthly throughout the academic year and I am the host and producer of that podcast as well where we interview award-winning practicing cartoonists. Um, but as far as how I got involved with that, going way back when I was a kid, I was a very reluctant reader and pretty much the only way that my parents were able to get me to start reading was through comics and I found that to be a lot more accessible. I could pair the words and the pictures and together they form something more than they could on their own and uh, I really became engrossed in comics and uh, that continued for several years until I got to high school at which point I sort of forgot about comics for a while until about the end of college and I was just finishing up a studio art degree and rediscovered comics and thought to myself, where have these been in my life for the past 10 years? And uh, that led to me making them and studying them and going to grad school and producing my own work and eventually getting a job teaching them as well. I would never thought that there was like a, a degree um, teaching comic book uh, making. Do you just... Um is your side of it, the creative side, like the drawing side of it, how do you teach that? So I accept any major, any walk of life into my studio classes. You don't have to be an art major. Um, you know, I think one of the main components of comics is storytelling. And if you don't have a narrative, something that you want to say with your work, then the pictures can be as pretty as you want and it's just going to fall flat. So um, I try to talk them through storytelling and narrative arcs, but also talk to them about illustration and how you can reproduce characters that look the same from panel to panel to panel so that it doesn't look like a different character suddenly appeared uh, so that you have that closure that happens between the panels so that it seems like there's a passage of time. Um, so uh, yeah, I try to encourage and coach students from whatever ability they come into the classroom with. Do they work like digitally? Do they draw digitally? I 
allow them to do whatever they are interested in doing. So I teach both analog and digital methods when I teach my studio courses and uh, they are free to choose whichever method suits them best. Um, there's a lot of back and forth between hand-drawn and digital. So uh, even if one person uses digital, it's not to say there's not hand-drawn elements in there. So there's a lot of uh, middle ground in there. It's not necessarily either or. So uh, regardless of whether they choose to illustrate by hand or digitally, um, you're still illustrating by hand, even when you're doing mm -hmm. it digitally. Um, regardless of which method they choose, they're still held to the same standards as one another. So when I teach them about things, uh, you know, inking principles, they, uh, you know, you want to think about the thickness of line in a number of different ways. Like if an object is closer to you, then you ink with a thicker line. If an object is further away, it's inked with a thinner line. And when you're thinking about light source, if a light source is coming from above, it's inked with a thin line where it's hit with the light most. And on the opposite side of the character where it's shadowed, you ink with a thicker line. So all of those principles hold true for whether the students are inking digitally or by hand. Mm -hmm. I literally never thought about those elements. So it's <laughs> Um, That's why we have comics classes. Yeah, I was going <laughs> What like medium do you work in? Do you draw it first and then transfer it over to? Um, I have a very convoluted working process that tends to work for me. Mm -hmm. When I'm making pages of comics, I will typically script in Microsoft Word or some word processing program, Google Docs. It doesn't matter. Um, and then when I'm ready to panel out the page and lay it out, I'll do that in a vector art program like Adobe Illustrator. And uh, usually I'll take those layouts into a program like Clip Studio and digitally pencil um, or I'll analog pencil or both. Sometimes I'll get the general uh, pencil layouts in Clip Studio and then print that out on Bristol, like a heavy cardstock type of paper in blue line and then I'll continue to pencil on that and then hand ink that's one of the constants is that I am a notorious hand inker I haven't found a digital method that gives me the fidelity of line that I want or I'm used mm -hmm. to uh, yeah. and uh, from that point I'll scan my original artwork back into the computer and uh, then digitally color in Photoshop but that's my working process and it's not to yeah. say that that is the comic book way to make comic books it's yeah. uh you know everybody has their own way and you know i'm sort of a process junkie i love going to people's websites and reading process posts about how they do things and trying to sort of ape some of their process to make mine more efficient so mm -hmm. that's kind of where i've arrived at after a number of years of doing this and uh, you know I also have a background in uh, teaching digital art programs like I've taught classes in Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop and uh, these tools are like extensions of my body so sometimes I just mm -hmm. sort of think in that method. Yeah how has um, teaching comic books changed in the last like 10 years with technology? If you, I don't know how long you've been doing it for, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, we are much more open to 
uh, different means of creating comics and different means of distributing comics. Um, you know, it's, it's great to have a printed book, but um, especially with the COVID-19 situation, we are not able to access uh, all the resources that we once were. So uh, we've started moving from physical books to digital books, uh, producing PDFs rather than physical copies. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an industry that's constantly in flux and there's been a lot of um, changes happening surrounding COVID-19 as there have been in, in all industries recently. Mm -hmm. And what um, inspires your own comics? Yeah, well, I mentioned that when I was a kid, I read comics and then forgot about them for a while. And when I came mm -hmm. back to comics, I found myself gravitating toward more true to life stories, nonfiction, historical fiction, autobiography. And I really wanted to start trying my hand at making comics. And so it was kind of a, a natural progression of my interest and then making uh, just kind of led me to try my hand at autobiography. And then that sort of morphed as I continued to make comics. Like my first comics were little one page strips about whatever happened in my life that day, but they started changing as my autobiographical comic book series went along. Um, I went off to grad school. I started reading a bunch of theory about autobiography and started thinking about ways that that directly related to comics. And that led to a number of different projects which sort of question the objectivity of autobiography and, and how they relate to comics. And what's it about comic, comics that interests you? You know, I, I think with comics, there's this really interesting amalgamation, this pairing of words and pictures. And uh, I don't know how comics are viewed in London or the UK, but in America, they're often looked at as like a lesser art form. And which is strange in my mind, because if words can be literature and pictures can be art, then why are the sum of the two less than the whole? So uh, in my mind, when those two pair together, they make really interesting opportunities to uh, allow those two seemingly different media to bounce off of one another and create new meaning. Mm -hmm. And then you were talking about your podcast earlier. What made you start that? Um, I... I'm also a big appreciator of podcasts. You know, as an artist, I spend a lot of time uh, on my own looking at a piece of paper and uh, usually I'll have something in my ears, uh, a podcast of some sort, if not music. And so I wanted to try my hand at that. And uh, we just wrapped up our fourth season right now. Um, so we've been doing this for four years, uh, interviewed almost 40 professionally practicing, award-winning cartoonists. And uh, it's a lot of fun, a lot of work. I learn a ton. It, it's, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it and am exhausted by it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> do you get your students, because it's to do with the university that you teach at, isn't it? Do you get your students involved? Is that right? Yes. So occasionally I will interview some of my students on the podcast. There's a local convention here called the Capital City Comic Con that happens annually. And we have a partnership with them where they give away the Capital City Comic Con MSU Comic Studies Scholarship, 
to one deserving student each year. And that's a thousand dollars scholarship. So typically I will interview the student who uh, got that scholarship on the podcast. But for the most part, it's kind of the Ryan Clater show. Like I'm the one <laughs> doing the interviews. I'm the one who's hosting. I'm the one who's editing the podcast and putting it together and tossing it up on the server and, mm-hmm. and making everything happen. And then about your comics, do you do commission comics? What's your commission work like? Because you were mentioning before that you've done lots of commission work. Yeah, so uh, it's not often that I will take on a commission for a full-blown comic because that is a lot of work. (laughs) But I will take on commissions for single image stuff. Um, And I've done event artwork and t-shirts for, uh, I mentioned Stern Pinball, who's the largest manufacturer of pinball machines in the world. Um, I've illustrated work for ReplayFX, which is the largest gaming convention in the world. Um, I have also started taking on uh, neon sign design recently. And um, to make a long story short, I designed my own neon sign for our basement arcade. <laughs> and this was sort of a, a, a present that my wife and my parents gave to me for my 40th birthday, which just happened in August. And after doing that, I was posting some images online and was contacted out of the blue by somebody who said, I've been watching your process on this and I want you to do that for me, and which I <laughs> never suspected would happen. But once that did happen, that started a snowball where a bunch of different folks started coming to myself and Josh Goodacre of the Neon Shop, who is the fabricator of the Neon Signs. And uh, we've just developed this really great working relationship together where I'll design the signs and he'll fabricate them. And I've got a portfolio of that on my website. If you're interested, you can check that out. (laughs) I would. It's at tinyurl.com slash clayacre. It's a melding of our two last names. So that Mm -hmm. last part is (laughs) C-L-A-Y-A-C-R-E. I have to think that. (laughs) Um, So do you prefer doing like commission work or teaching or like doing your own comics? You know, when I was, when I first got out of college, I thought that I would like to just do one thing. And uh, I ran my own graphic design business for a while. And it was kind of solitary work. And I found myself craving more human interaction. And Mm -hmm. I knew that I also liked teaching. So I started teaching classes as well. And I know this is going to sound like... Sorry for interrupting. Was that graphic design then? Or was it like comic book related, those classes? Um, then it was graphic design. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, uh, to jump back into that chronology, basically I discovered that, uh, if I'm only doing one thing, like if I'm only doing personal work, then I feel isolated and removed. If I'm only doing teaching, then I feel like I'm not nurturing my own work. And so I'm, kind of in this happy spot where I can do both. I can teach and I can also work on my own work. And I think there's always this sort of push pull of like, oh, I wish I had more time to do my own work or uh, I wish I had more time to teach. Um, And I'm always kind of 
navigating that personal struggle. But deep down, I know that I need both in my life. Of everything. Mm. Yeah. Um, So what project are you working on at the moment? Are you working on a personal comic? Yeah. So in 2019, I released my latest book that I illustrated and co-wrote with my buddy, Nick Baldridge. So together we made this book called Coin-Op Carnival. It's about the history of electromechanical coin-operated amusement devices. So translated into human words, that means old pinball and arcade games. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a 64-page, full-color, fully illustrated publication. There's illustrations on every single page, if not full-blown comics. And over the course of 2019, we toured the United States, where we hit 10 different states and 17 different stops, letting people know about our new book that came out. And now that that is over with, we are working on issue number two of Coin-Op Carnival. And uh, I've been illustrating images for that. And we've got the interview done and edited. And we're writing articles. Um, It's sort of like an illustrated magazine, uh, Mm -hmm. if I had to call it something. (laughs) What does your partner do? How do you work together in terms of your book? Um, So we co-write the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am... I'm the sole illustrator of the book, but we co-write the entire thing. Uh, Each issue has an interview, which is like the anchor article for the book. Uh, That occupies about half the book. And then the latter half, we have uh, four different articles. Um, We have a review of an electromechanical pinball machine, a review of an electromechanical arcade game, uh, tech segment, and a product spotlight. And uh, so one issue... I will take the pinball machine and Nick will take the arcade game. The next issue Mm -hmm. we flip flop. So I'll take the arcade game and he'll take the pinball machine review. Nick always does the tech segment because he is the technical genius and I make no claims of that title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I always do the product spotlight. And then we have some other ancillary stuff in the back, like, uh, paper craft models of the reviewed games that we were talking about in the issue so that, you know, if you can't find this rare game we were talking about, we've got your back in the form of a 7% scale model. <laughs> <laughs> Nick is just a technical genius. I cannot overstate that enough. <laughs> this publication would not be what it is without him. Um, I think it's easy to take a look at it and say, oh, there's a lot of artwork in here. This must be the Ryan show. And it's not. (laughs) We definitely collaborate on everything. Every article that either one of us writes, we're both giving each other feedback about it. Every illustration I do, Nick has feedback about it and I'll make changes based on that so that everything is as accurate as we can possibly make it. We want Mm -hmm. this to be a historically factual document. Um, Would you say that American culture influences your work? (laughs) I mean, probably. I don't know how it couldn't since I live here, I guess. Um, And I don't know. I I think... um, Was there a lot of like um, fairgrounds and stuff when you were growing up or did you like go to fairgrounds a lot? You know, I I did go to the occasional fair and the occasional carnival, and I do remember playing these games when I was uh, when I was younger. So, yeah, I guess so. I I only hesitate because you know America likes to take credit for everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they say, oh well, comic books are an American art form, and 
it didn't originate here. And they'll say things like, oh, pinball is as American as apple pie. And again, bagatelle came from Europe. So Americans didn't invent pinball. So when you say, does American culture influence what I do? Um, kind of. It, those things are made here now, and I'm mm -hmm. interested in those things. And there's definitely a part of the history of each of those things that I'm interested in here in America, a large part. But it's not to say that, you know, we are the originator of all these things. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to misconstrue that. Yeah. Where did comic books originate if it was in America? Well, that's a hotly contested question. <laughs> and I don't know how much time you have <clears throat> because some people take it way back to Egyptian times and, you know, looking at the artwork, moving up those freezes, there's, uh, there's a sequence to them. And mm -hmm. is that comics? Maybe. A lot of folks will point to Rodolphe Topfer, who came out with these books in the 1800s that had images paired with text. They weren't traditional speech balloons like you see in comics today, but they were essentially panels of sequenced images. So pretty close to comics, if not comics. And it really depends on your personal definition of comics, which is mm -hmm. a, another thing that's discussed, uh, is what is a comic? Uh, mm -hmm. Is a Dennis the Menace or a Family Circus single panel gag a comic? Or does it have to have sequential images, like images paired next to one another before it is a comic? So it depends. There's not an easy answer to that. Sorry. What is it in, <laughs> where is it and what is it in your opinion? Um, I think I'm you're quite qualified gonna, to comment on these I'm, things. <laughs> I'm probably going to defer that only because this is a question that I ask my students at the beginning of our class is... What they, what they think. What, what is a comic? And so okay. they have their opinions and then I'll, I'll hold up an image of a, a single panel gag strip mm -hmm. and say, you know, how about this? Is this comics? And well, sure. Uh, I read those in the newspaper. Okay. Mm -hmm. But this definition that you just agreed on says there needs to be sequential images. So by that definition, these are no longer comics. So now what do you think? Do you think they are not comics or do you think we need to revise this definition? You know, this is a, a point of, of discussion that I use to get students thinking critically about the medium on our first mm -hmm. day. So, so I'm going to take the easy way out and defer <laughs> this one. <laughs> what type of comics are your students creating? Like mostly are they doing like made up stories or, or do they do things like you do? I try to leave assignments as wide open as possible. I want the students to essentially make what they came to my class to make. I'm assuming that if they enrolled in a comics class, they have some sort of idea about what they want to put to paper. So uh, in the intro class, uh, over the course of the semester, we do three short story comics. The first one is um, artist statement comic. So whatever it is they're interested in, if they're a painter or a ceramicist or an English major or an underwater basket weaver, a volleyball player, whatever they do, I want them to write an artist statement about that 
in comics form. So that's their first assignment. The second one is a wordless comic. So a story forwarded through imagery alone using no words whatsoever, but it can be on any topic. The topic is wide open. And then the final uh, short story of the intro class is completely wide open aside from page count. Like I don't want them to propose a 100 page space odyssey when there's only four weeks of class left. You know, it's mm -hmm. just not possible. <laughs> So um, that's the intro class. And um, so I get all kinds of different uh, comics. Uh, you know, some of the most interesting work from the past you know, decade I've been teaching this class um, has been from people that are not art majors. Like I'm remembering this one student who was a music major. And one of the comics that I show them in class is called Rabbit Head by Rebecca Dart. It's this genius surrealistic comic that has these um i'll try to explain it in audio <laughs> form i know we're doing a podcast here but i'll, I'll see how i can do but essentially <laughs> there's a single tier of panels on the first page and it's stories protagonist who um like i said it's sort of a surrealistic tale if i explained it it would make very little sense it's about this mm anthropomorphic female rabbit headed figure that rides around on this flat faced dino neck horse beast. It's super weird, but <laughs> um, this single tier of panels will start bifurcating like something will happen. So maybe she's riding along and she, she spits and that spit moves into two parts. One hits a tree, one hits the ground. And then there's like this diagrammatic zoom up to this next tier of where that spit hit the tree and starts to grow and become sentient and leaps off the tree and starts bounding through the landscape. Whereas the part of spit that hit the ground, diagrammatic zoom to a lower tier of panels. Now you've got three concurrent tiers. So essentially it's showing these concurrently happening narratives all the same time and it continues to fork and fork and fork again until there are uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine different tiers of panels all cascading across the page at the same time. So comics is a rare medium where you can do something like that where you can show half a dozen different things happening at the same time and um, try to imagine another medium where that happens. Books, you can't type print on top of each other, mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't make any sense. Uh, movies, can you do picture and picture and picture and picture? Your brain couldn't intake all of that. Mm -hmm. But in comics, you can choose to focus on just one of those tiers, or you can step back from the page and appreciate it as an entire layout and understand what's happening. So my student took that and ran with it and essentially created this comic about music students who each were having different things happening in their life and it started out as multiple tiers and then they all started coming together as the students went toward this um, uh, concert hall and they started forking together as the students met until it got to one tier where they were all in a recital in front of an audience and that was the single tier and then the music started playing, uh, you know, visually, but, uh, so yeah, I, there's all sorts of different types of comics and the students inevitably bring their own experiences to that. Yeah. That was really interesting. It's like having a book with one chapter in one person's point of view and then another ch chapter in another one. So that's really cool. So that's all the questions I have for you, but is there anything else that you wanted to add? 
I just really want to thank Mr. Jones Watches and company for this opportunity. I've had such an amazing time working on this really unique art piece and uh, I would love to do more. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Yeah, I, I mean, Crispin has been just lovely to work with, but I've been introduced to half a dozen different members of the team and every person I've interacted with has just been really great and on the ball and does what they say they're going to do. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. So I guess the only thing I'd say is thank you for... Oh, thank, thank you as well. <laughs> Thanks for designing and thank you for coming on today and uh, good luck with the release next week. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. It was fun to talk to Ryan and learn about comics. I had never considered the work that goes into making a comic book before. You can see Ryan's work over on his website, elephanteatercomics.com, and find his podcast at smucomics.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening. This is the last episode of Series 1. Keep an eye on your email and our social media for news on Series 2, at Mr. Jones Watches. 